of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, I'm Evan Rotar, a cardiothoracic surgery resident at the University of Virginia. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Gaurav Alawadi, Professor and Chair of Cardiac Surgery at the University of Michigan. Our topic today will cover part two of the mitral valve resect versus respect podcasts, and our topic today will be mitral annular calcification. We'll start with a scenario. A 73-year-old female presents from her cardiologist with a diagnosis of symptomatic mitral regurgitation, mild pulmonary hypertension, diabetes, and hypertension. Her EF is 55%, and she has mild left carotid stenosis. She presents for further workup and evaluation. Based on this presentation, how would you approach this patient and are there any specific tests you routinely order? So Evan, thanks for having me. Um, I'm happy to try to share whatever knowledge I've learned about MAC and and, uh, mitral valve disease uh, with you and uh, your colleagues. So obviously the first is to obtain a full history and um, you you really wanna understand what their symptoms are. Is it heart failure symptoms uh, or is it uh, angina? or are they not really uh, very symptomatic? I mean, I've had some patients that have tremendous amount of MAC, uh, a fair amount of mitral valve regurgitation, yet they're not that symptomatic. And I think that is important when you're thinking about timing for surgery, which we'll, we'll get to, but if they're not that symptomatic and it's, an, it's a high-risk operation, I put it off as much as I can until they really have symptoms. So um, I have probably about a half a dozen patients that I'm following with, with pretty bad MAC that we're waiting for them to really have bad enough symptoms. And the symptoms can be subtle. So occasionally we may put them up, have them get a stress test or something like that, but getting a good idea of how bad their symptoms are, how much does it affect their life? You know, if they're you know unable to walk due to another reason and they're not that symptomatic uh, from, their, from their valve, then again, another reason you might wanna put it off. In terms of other, other tests, um, you know, obviously you get your, your echoes, your Transthoracic echo is particularly useful in quantifying the degree of mitral regurgitation and in particular looking for mitral stenosis. And I know we'll talk about that later. The transthoracic echo is better for mitral stenosis in terms of measuring a good gradient. Mm-hmm. Um, the the transesophageal echo may give you a better idea of if there's um, shadowing from the MAC, uh, from, from calcium. Obviously, when, you, when you're evaluating a patient, you don't know that they have MAC. Right. And many times the cardiologist doesn't even know that yet when, when they're sending it to you. Um, so I fairly routinely get a transesophageal echo when looking, for, looking at patients with mitral valve disease to better understand the repairability uh, mm-hmm. and the mechanisms. The, the other tests, of course, are heart catheterization, particularly in this type of patient. If they're younger and don't have risks, you know, if they're in their 50s or younger, we may get a coronary CT. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the purpose of that is really to look at the dominance of the coronaries to minimize risk uh, of injuring the circumflex artery in those younger patients. Um, I may or may not get a right heart cath. Um, commonly get a right heart cath if they're very symptomatic or if their right uh, ventricular function is poor to, to again, look at their what their risk is and determine some of those patients I admit them prior to their surgery 
to diurese them and optimize them with, with the help of our heart failure cardiologist. Uh, and then, of course, um, the, the important test is a CT scan. Uh, and this can be without contrast, uh, but it also can be very helpful to get a uh, contrasted CT scan to really get a better, better characterization of the degree of calcium and, uh, importantly, the size of the mitral valve. And that will come into play when we talk about some of the transcatheter options uh, for mitral valve replacement when you have really big, big MAC. So those are kind of the summary of the, the various tests. And if we're thinking about a minimally invasive approach, we'll get that CT not just of the chest, but chest, abdomen, pelvis to look for cannulation approaches and things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So completion of her evaluation reveals New York Heart Association class three heart failure symptoms, echo findings of four plus MR, and imaging demonstrating mitral annular calcification. Uh, I know we just kind of talked about this, but what is your preferred method of assessing the extent of the calcification and its potential impact on your approach? Yeah, I think it's it's probably a combination of, of transesophageal echo and CT, but CT is the primary driver a lot of times to really see the degree of MAC. And, and one of the things we're going to talk about is that MAC comes in various different forms. It could be focal in one area, it could be most of the posterior annulus, it could be circumferential. Sometimes the MAC is actually fairly focal, but encroaching on the, uh, a good part of the posterior leaflet and actually was is the cause of a uh, cord rupture. And in that case, there might not be a lot of posterior leaflet once you take out calcium that's left to actually do a reconstruction. And so it comes in many different flavors. And I think that's one of the, one of the take-home points is going to be you have to tailor the operation and the approach to the, the degree of MAC and the, the pattern of MAC. So the CT is extremely helpful in that, um, to look at where the MAC is, the extent of it. The, we, don't, we haven't gotten quite savvy enough to get a real calcium score and really what that means, but uh, like we have for aortic valve disease, but likely there is a, some thresholds where we start thinking more about replacement when you have high, heavy degrees of MAC as opposed to trying to repair the valve. Okay. So our patient's CT imaging demonstrates extensive calcification of the posterior annulus with scattered anterior leaflet involvement. Since our patient meets criteria for mitral valve repair, what would you offer this patient and how would you plan for dealing with that annular calcification? Yeah, so we didn't, you know, in this scenario, obviously it's very hypothetical. We didn't actually talk about what is the mechanism of MR. And I think that, that becomes very important as well in determining if they, are a, if they meet criteria for repair or not. Um, at first glance, the patient's very symptomatic mm -hmm. from mitral disease, and we'd like to offer them something if we can do it with, without extreme risk. Then the next question is, what's the best technique? Is it a surgical repair, surgical replacement, or is it one of these newer things that, that we're doing? And so that's where the pattern of, of calcium plays into it. With what you're describing, obviously, at the end of the day, a picture's worth a thousand words, and right experience of looking at at the CT will help but what you're describing sounds like a lot of calcium and and someone where it, it really might not be the easiest to repair the valve okay and, and okay. where you might want to consider replacement but the other thing is what's the mechanism of MR now in this patient there's probably two scenarios or two 
reasons why they can get MR. One is, as I mentioned, if that posterior annular calcification is encroaching upon the leaflet in a focal area and caused a ruptured cords mm-hmm. because the, the posterior leaflet becomes immobile and not flexible and all of a sudden there's a lot of tension then on the cords. Okay. When you think about that, repairing that valve likely will be difficult because once you even take out that calcium, you have very little leaflet left. Or if you used a respect technique where you where you use artificial cords, you could put cords in, in the papillary muscle and attach it to that ruptured cord, but you won't be able to pull the posterior leaflet down because the calcium is so heavy in that area. And it, it likely is the cause of why that cord ruptured to begin with, because the calcium encroached up on the, the leaflet so substantially okay. that there's very little non-calcified posterior leaflet. And it could be very focal. I've seen it in, in a very focal area, but because of that, it... it essentially makes it not a repairable valve. The other way that we see MAC causing MR is not a cordal issue at all. It's just that the calcium is so burdensome and heavy that the entire posterior leaflet becomes fixed. Okay. Okay. It becomes restricted and fixed and, and not mobile, and the leaflets, the entire leaflet can't come together. In that particular scenario, there is no repaired option. Mm-hmm. So the, it's really just um, replaced. You know, and so if, if you describe a, a patient who maybe has more focal MAC, maybe it's in a section of posterior annulus, those are scenarios, and they have a, a good amount of posterior leaflet tissue, those are scenarios where you could use the David technique and unhinge the posterior annulus, debride the calcium, reattach the posterior annulus. But I think those are very select patients that you should be thinking about that. And those are going to be typically a younger patient who you want to repair and their MAC is not as extensive as what you're describing here. Okay. That's super helpful to know. So you just mentioned the David technique and it seems like there's several other resection techniques that have been described for annular decalcification, including direct closure, the Carpentier left atrial release. Is there anything that would prompt you to choose one over another or do you have a preferred approach? Or again, these are going to be a really specific patient. Yeah, I uh, think these are with. a very, um, very specific patient and a very specific surgeon. <laughs> you know, who's, okay. who's had experience with this. Again, I think the the more focal it is, the easier it is to deal with. And a lot of it comes down to having a lot of leaflet to work with. If you don't have a lot of leaflet to work with, that's not necessarily involved with heavy calcium then these techniques become more challenging. I particularly have used Tyrone David's approach of unhinging and then taking out calcium you know, sharply in a, in a focal area of the posterior annulus and then reattaching the posterior leaflet to the annulus. And you can use a patch or not, but I don't know if it's always the best consideration to, that you have to remove all the calcium. I think that's where you can get into real trouble unless you have a lot of experience with with dealing with the complications, uh, which I, I'm sure we'll talk about. Right. There's technology out there as well. Do you ever use the Cavitron ultrasonic surgical aspirator? Yes, I think that's a very helpful technology. I use a, a different company called Sonopet, which is similar approach in ultrasound-based technology to, to basically um, break the calcium. It sounds like you're in a dentist's office, actually. You hear the, the high-pitched sound. And the only thing to be careful with that particular technology is these devices cause kind of shredding of the calcium. There can be very fine, small specks of calcium that get scattered in the left atrium and left ventricle. And so you need 
you know, your assistant to actively be sucking with it with a heavy kind of vacuum tip sucker to make sure that you get all that debris and irrigate well. Okay. Just to watch out for that, but because that calcium kind of goes everywhere. But I use that in two scenarios in someone with severe MAC and MR. If if the shape of the annulus will not accommodate a circular valve replacement. And I particularly only use that in the scenario where I'm going to replace the valve. I don't always use that in a repair repairable. In fact, a lot of times if the if the calcium is very focal and we're repairing the valve and the and the calcium is not affecting the leaflet mobility in the area of prolapse or flail, I leave it alone. Leave it alone and, and that's goes back to the respect approach don't necessarily need to take it all out because I think that you can get into trouble and it's not involved in causing the MR, then, then it might be a safer approach. So the, the aspirators and ultrasound really help with debriding enough so that you can put your annual sutures in. The other scenario it's very helpful in is if you have severe mitral stenosis from MAC where you can't put a valve in. Um, you know, the valve, even the small valves, or uh, I've even put a, an aortic valve in which are smaller than the mitral valves, put it in upside down because okay. the, the MAC is so bad and we, we use the ultrasound to get enough space just to put that in or soften up the annuals so that you can put annual sutures in. There's one other technology that I've heard people use, which I haven't had an opportunity to use yet, is as, as we've learned from deploying sapien valves, which we'll talk about in a minute, some uh, people have in the past used a balloon to size the valve. In this case, they're using a balloon to disrupt the annulus enough that you can put annular sutures. And that's really the key when you're replacing it. You want to get good annular sutures in or, or on something that's going to hold. And the, the ultrasound helps to soften up the annulus. Sounds like the balloon dilation, gentle balloon dilation may also do the same thing. Okay, great. So as you just mentioned, a stenosis scenario. So let's change our valvular pathology for this patient uh, from the index scenario to a situation where they have severe mitral stenosis. How would this alter your approach? And what other new interventions and technologies do we have in our armamentarium now? Right. So I, I do think that mitral uh, stenosis is a different can of worms than mitral regurgitation, particularly since it gets harder to put a, a valve in, uh, at least a conventional surgical valve you have less space to work with, you have to debride a lot more, and then you have to, at least if you're gonna do this with a conventional surgical approach, change your approach from a mostly respect to now I need to resect, take out a fair amount of calcium. Mm -hmm. And again, in that scenario, I tend to still fall on the respect line. I don't need to take all the calcium out. I need to take enough that a valve fits. So I've got the small mitral valve sizer, the 25 valve sizer, and I'm basically comparing it to to the amount of debridement I'm doing, and I, I'll use the ultrasound uh, sonopad or CUSA in that scenario to, to okay. get to that point, and then I kind of stop. And then stop. I don't necessarily keep going just to try to get the all the calcium out. I think that, again, can, can get you in danger. The other, there, there are new approaches which we've alluded to, which I actually like a fair amount. Uh, one is uh, many have heard about using sapien valves, sapien three valves in the mitral position. Um, they can either be done totally percutaneously, and there's there's a growing experience by our cardiology colleagues doing that. But unfortunately, the do you have any idea what the what the mortality is with that? I do not. So there there is a the first hundred patient registry there was about a 25 to 30 percent mortality. 
and the two reasons patients died were from paravalvular leak, because again, there's no sutures, and you're putting around replacement valve in an oval space, because the, the MAC sometimes doesn't accommodate into a circle. Sure. Uh, into a D-shape, you know, from D-shape to circle. And then the other is LV outflow tract obstruction. Because the difference in mitral regurgitation and mitral stenosis often is not necessarily with the mitral valve, it's with the ventricle. When you have mitral stenosis, the left ventricle is often small and a bit hypertrophied. Okay. Whereas when you have mitral regurgitation, it's often dilated. And when you have a small ventricle, you're much more at risk for outflow tract obstruction because the valve... The sapien valve, when deployed, it's up against the septum. So we've done probably about 20 cases, and there's a large and growing experience across the, the world implanting it under a direct vision or surgical approach, whether it's a sternotomy or our approach is a, a port access through the right chest. And how we prevent those complications is two ways. One is we can take out some of the anterior leaflet, and we can actually remove some septum to prevent an outflow tract or minimize an outflow tract obstruction. Okay. The second thing I do is I'll put a fair amount of felt in the mitral annulus, felt strips in the mitral annulus, one around from the anterior to anterior commissure and one around the posterior annulus, and then deploy the mitral valve, the sapien valve in that mitral space with the felt in place to try to prevent paravalvular leaks. We'll put typically as many sutures as we can to, to, uh, to put it in, but I'll you know, oftentimes put in maybe four or six sutures so it's not like a conventional valve where you're putting circumferential annual sutures and you can't okay. do that sometimes because the calcium is so heavy. So heavy, sure. And, and hard to do. So, you know, I, I think that there's potentially a benefit to a surgical approach, um, but these patients oftentimes are, are pretty sick and you have to work with your heart team to decide if they're a candidate for, for that approach. Right. The other exciting approach is the tendine valve. And I don't know if now it's a good time to talk about that. That would be great. Yeah, I was okay. going to ask you, could you talk a little bit about so, tendine and its kind of emergence into this space? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, there's many new technologies of transcatheter mitral replacement that's been, that have been in development. Uh, the tendine valve has had a small but pretty impressive experience with severe MAC, whether it's mitral regurgitation initially uh, or mitral stenosis. And that is an approach that does not require a cardiopulmonary bypass or arresting the heart. Uh, it is still surgical, so surgeons need to be aware of it, and residents and fellows need to uh, you know, be aware that this is out there. It's through a left thoracotomy, direct puncture into the apex. It's a large sheath. It's over 30, 30 French, so it's a very large sheath. Uh, but the tendine valve has a special apical pad that try to helps, that really does help in minimizing bleeding from that apex. And really, it's an echo and fluoro-driven procedure where you're deploying a sutureless valve. The exciting thing about MAC, the first nine or ten patients that were done in the United States, there was zero procedural mortality. Uh, one patient did not survive six months. The rest li- have lived more, much longer than a year. And their symptoms went from class three to four heart failure to class one in the vast majority. That's fantastic. And really what surprised everybody is that there really wasn't a very high risk of a paravalvular leak. And importantly, not there's virtually no risk of an annual rupture, which is what I think a lot of people were concerned about. So sure. we're now seeing other devices, other, other companies that are trying to tackle this particular patient cohort because there is, you know, they're, they're sick and there's not a great option and even though the sapien mac is a good option it's still 
pretty pretty major surgery for some of these older, frailer people. Sure. Well, that's that's really exciting, and uh, hopefully, as that continues to develop, we see that integrated into all of our, our training programs. Second to last question, we'd be remiss to not address it, but let's say we've resected the calcium bar from the initial patient. Uh, we were satisfied with uh, our repair and, and uh, what we were able to accomplish. Um, as we're attempting to wean from bypass, there's a drop in blood pressure, pericardial well starts filling with bright red blood. What runs through your mind and, and how do you address the situation? Sure. Uh, and I would want to emphasize this can happen not just with repair, but with replacement if you debride too, too deeply with the ultrasound or your bites aren't secure enough and it's not a question of being deep. Uh, sometimes the calcium can break. You know, the, the, the character of the of calcium in MAC, I tell patients, can be as fragile and brittle as an eggshell to as heavy and thick as a lead pipe. So, and I don't think we're savvy enough with imaging ahead of time to know the spectrum of, particularly all along the mitral annulus, you might see different qualities of, of the MAC. And so the goal is to prevent, you know, a valve from rocking, causing paravalve leak, or the sutures from tearing, and or the aortic, uh, the atrium and ventricle separating. So first things first is, you know, if you have an AV groove disruption, it's not subtle. It's, it's impressive. You see pulsatile blood coming out of the well pretty dramatically. And I've seen it once and it is, uh, you know, your heart sinks as well as the patient heart sinks. It's, it's pretty dramatic. The first thing is just to make sure it's not something simple. The left atrial suture line can bleed. Okay. And so if you okay. see bright blood, obviously that's oxygenated. And so right. look at your left atrial suture line, make sure it's not coming from, from there. And assuming that's okay, then you can start looking a little deeper. And, and sometimes, you know, you don't want to lift the heart up too much, but you want to look around to see, is there blood really getting ejected? And, and if you have a, an AV groove disruption, a lot of times what you'll see is there's a lot of bruising around the mitral annulus, like a hematoma that's in, in the ventricle. And then you'll see little areas where, where blood is ex- getting extruded out. Uh, through the epicardium. It's not necessarily one focal area and there's an ejection mm-hmm. that you can patch or anything like that from the outside. And so in that scenario, the only way out of it that I know of is to go back on pump, stop the heart, mm-hmm. take the valve out. And this is where you do need to potentially res- resect more so that you're on an annulus that's really just muscle and then put a generous pericardial patch. And that can be tricky because you know, sometimes the calcium goes further down into the ventricle. It's not just in the annual. Sometimes it goes down all the way to the papillary muscles or the whole posterior wall. The other issue is that, you know, you have to get nice bites with your pericardial patch into the myocardium. And the myocardium, you know, is kind of like, you know, any, any muscle where it can pull through just like tissue paper. And you have to get really good bites, just like if you've ever seen an acute MI uh, VSD. Mm-hmm. It's it's very similar to that. That it's very poor quality, and and sometimes it's you know already bruised up and hematoma and things like that. So right. that becomes a challenge. And the other thing sometimes I find that helps is you put you put your patch in down at the ventricular side as you're bringing it up. I've occasionally used bio glue and or felt on the posterior annulus and then folded uh, pericardial patch over. Very generous, and then go ahead and put your inner sutures through it. And even then the, you know, survival is less than 50% in the best case. Sure. So it's the, you know, the goal is to try to avoid that and stay out of it. 
Uh, but if you're dealing with these patients, you will definitely see it in your career and you to at least have to have an idea of how to handle it. Okay. And hopefully these new techniques, the sapien valve, the sutureless transcatheter mitral valves, will tr really try to you know, minimize this risk. Right. Great. Any final thoughts or recommendations for listeners on how to deal with MAC or kind of as we, as we move forward, obviously the space is evolving, but mm -hmm. what to kind of keep an eye out for? Yeah, I'd say MAC comes in many shapes, patterns, and you have to really tailor the approach and repair, replace, sternotomy, port access, uh, tendine, saping, all that. You have to really tailor that based on the pattern of, of MAC. MR versus MS. MS, you're going to need to replace the valve. Uh, MR, you know, very specific focal areas. You can repair them uh, without too much difficulty. And so you have to really tailor it. Uh, the, other, the other thing you mentioned is the, the CT imaging is absolutely key to try to understand that. And I think in the past we, we kind of didn't really appreciate how important that is. And that really helps with understanding what the approaches are. And, and one other thing we didn't talk about for the sapien valve is when you have a big valve with severe MAC, so the sapien valve only comes in a 29 millimeter. So there are patients I've seen where we, we plan to do that and we find out that, that the annulus is too big. And so again, the imaging ahead of time and really understanding with some of the new software that's out there measuring the mitral annulus mm -hmm. has become very helpful. Uh, really understanding the outflow tract because this is a very intricate relationship anatomically between the mitral valve and the LV outflow tract. Uh, and that is a big point of exclusion from a lot of patients with uh, for the transcatheter valve. So I'd say imaging, understanding the pattern of MAC. And, you know, when it gets to very significant amounts of MAC, probably referral to specialized centers. Okay, great. This concludes our time for today. Dr. Alawadi, thank you so much for your insight and perspective on the topic. We really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for having me. For further discussion on mitral valve surgery, please look for the other half of this brief series where Katie Wagner interviews Dr. Stephen Bowling from the University of Michigan about mitral valve repair, RESEC versus RESPECT. Thanks again for listening.